I think that for most of human history, hunting was a pretty violent thing and it didn't go well for us. You know, we used to hunt some really large species. And uh, I think that a lot of times hunters didn't come home again and it was fairly traumatic. So our ability to forget those moments that, that seem like they should be so memorable and forget them instantly is probably a, a survival mechanism to, uh, to be able to block out some really traumatic stuff. Huh? I mean, Hey, it, it, it could very well be. I just don't know why else we, we completely panic and forget (laughs) what happened. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Well, I've been following along a little bit with what you're doing and, uh, Frankly, I'm fascinated. I love it. I've got a bunch of questions, but before we get into that, tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. I'm Mike Yoder, and I have a drone deer recovery. I use uh, thermal imaging drones to locate uh, deer that have been hit that hunters can't find, and I'm able to come in with uh, thermals, locate the body heat of the deer, and then switch to zoom camera and uh, take a look at him. Man, what a time to be alive. Yeah. It is the wildest thing. Yeah. Um, regulations vary widely state to state in in all kinds of tools that are available or not available to people for following up wounded animals. Yeah. So the typical tool that people turn to is dogs, right? And and yeah. that's a that's yep. a fantastic tool if that's what you have available. Um, but it can be a little bit invasive to to the environment, whereas with a drone in the way that you are doing it, I don't feel like you're having a negative impact on the environment or the other animals that are around there at all. At all. Yep. If, if states want to start looking at this, um, and, and we're going to be on the forefront of pushing this, it's like, if they allow dogs, they should for sure allow this because this is even less disturbance to all the other wildlife out there. Uh, if you're doing this type of track, um, or locate is what we call it. It, it is a game changer. It just, you can just know that, that the way we're doing it is probably the best way as far as scaring less deer. And overall, um, I would r- recommend it over a dog, but that's just me. What are your success rates? Um, so I don't give a success rate because I think dog uh, guys 
uh, do that same thing. It's like if when we screen people, we can probably kind of figure out which deer are going to be dead within a certain uh, number of okay. uh, yards. But the way I, I give that answer to everybody that asks me is basically if the deer is dead within 400 to 1,000 yards, I'll be able to find it. Wow. There's only been two times that uh, I haven't found a deer that was dead within those yardage. And one was it was laying in water. And the other was I just didn't have enough experience yet at the time and didn't know how to position my drone into certain areas to really get a good look at it. Yeah. As far as people's ability to to track a wounded deer, after 150 yards, the the success that I can expect a, a hunter to have is actually very low. Um, yeah. so, so if an animal is able to make it beyond that 150 yard threshold, man, a, just a lot of them don't get found. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of anything, anything that makes hunting more ethical. And one of the greatest possibilities or potentials for unethical behavior is losing an animal that we've wounded nobody wants yep. that and it, it is yep. it is the worst part of hunting besides the fact that some people use llamas to do it out west that's easily the worst thing that is involved in hunting right now but um beyond that kind of joking here beyond that wounding and losing an animal is as bad as it gets and we want to prevent that for a wide number of reasons Yep. So talk to me a little bit about how this all got started. Uh, well, basically, the story I always go to is I, I uh, fly airplanes, and I like things that fly. I've flown RCs, and I was using drones to do other stuff for a different business that I have. And uh, one day I was sitting with my buddy, and he's like talking about thermal drones for roofing inspection. And it was like, well, I thought about getting into the, you know, getting one and then finding deer with it. And he's like, I think it'd be a great idea. So I bought one, a cheaper one, 7,500 bucks, um, you know, tested it out and found that it doesn't work in all situations. Wanted to see what the sportsman's feedback is. They were like totally blown away with it at an expo I did. And then I went all in and bought a big drone and yeah, launched it. Obviously, it took a little bit of time and uh, came up with a brand because I wanted to have a huge brand and not just in my local area. And it's paid off uh, dividends for sure. Yeah, this is definitely a scalable business. There's no reason that you shouldn't have cells operating in all the places where this is legal to do. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, even where it isn't legal, I want to have a whole team of people that are going to be approaching these states uh, that say it's not legal. And we are going to show them uh, the professional way of doing this. Even if they say it's not legal, let's show them how we can better this for all sportsmen, even for the states. Like, uh, okay, so let's say, right, they have a quota. Every state has a quota that you're trying to meet. Um, let's say it's a two buck state. And you hit a buck that you don't find, and now you go out and you kill another one. Like, that's going to screw up their whole data. Why shouldn't they allow this to be legal if I can help with overall data that they're collecting? It just blows my mind that they wouldn't allow it. Sure. Um, and if we're talking about ethics, which largely we are, uh, people shouldn't be doing that. If, if you wound an animal, you should punch your tag on that animal. I've talked about that a lot before, and, and I firmly believe it. Um, we generally re refer to that as Africa rules. If you make it bleed, yeah. then, then, uh, then you need to do the right thing and exhaust every resource possible in order to yeah. re recover that animal. But if you don't, 
don't be a field veterinarian and be like, oh, he's probably going to live just because you didn't find him. Like that doesn't mean that at all. You don't know what infections he's going to come up against. You don't know if coyotes are going to now target that animal because he's wounded and bleeding. You have no idea. So just make peace with it. And yeah, it's painful to punch your tag on an animal that you didn't recover, but let that pain turn into good shooting practices or better equipment or whatever you need to improve the next year so that you don't do that. But one of these tools that we should be exhausting is probably drone recovery. So if I call you and I say, hey, man, I just shot this buck. I can't find him. What's your first question for me? Uh, Basically, I'm going to start with a question like, well, where do you think you hit him? Because where you think you hit him, where you actually hit him might be two different things. I'm just going to collect some data. And basically, this data is uh, data that I'm collecting. So over the years, I am going to have a mass of data that I can maybe plug into um, some type of software and it's going to kick back, you know, mechanical broadheads if they're shot in in the front quarter of a deer, you know, percentage of, of us recovering that deer are this number of uh, recoveries and um, oftentimes they were alive or oftentimes they died after a certain many hours or whatever. So I'm going to collect data from you basically for my storage and then I'll tell you, you know, we'll be able to come out uh, around this time if you're going to be there. Uh, if that's going to work on your end, then we'll meet you out there. We'll go over a map, basically pull out your phone look at where you hit him uh, or where, yeah, where you shot, where you tracked him to and where you feel he went. And then we'll just kind of go into that direction with the drone kind of in, you know, if you say, well, I feel like he went down in this draw, we'll go over into that draw with the drone and we'll look around. If we don't find him there, then we'll just start going wider. Then if that, you know, let's just say we're a quick search. I'm going down the draw, coming back to the draw, didn't find him. Then we have to broaden that search and we're like, Let's start doing um, basically grid search with the drone. I'll pick an area and I'll, I'll fly down, come back, go a little wider, go down, come back and just um, broaden, keep going like that until basically once I'm a thousand yards out from there, um, chances of me finding it are pretty slim. Sure. Your ability to switch from a thermal camera to the, you know, the day vision camera is really interesting to me. So the, you know, my introduction to you was seeing one of your videos and your, you know, deer drone recovery. Okay. That's interesting. We're using thermals. Yeah. Um, I thought definitely thought about that. Wish I could do it here. And then when you flew over this heat signature, it's like, Oh, well there's something, you know, and I'm expecting it to turn into like a ground investigation at this point. And then the video switches to you zooming in at 40 power to this animal now you can tell exactly what's going on is it dead is it alive is it is it the deer that we thought we were looking for incredible yo yeah it's wild um and when you see it okay so i'm trying to uh convey that on the videos i think i do all right but when you see it in person dude it's it's nuts like it's one button push back and forth on those cameras zooming in like crazy like you said and you'll be able to tell if that's the deer you hit or not now I say that, but if, uh, like, I'm looking for a bunch of Amish folks here, and some of them aren't allowed to run trail cameras, so it's a little for them to remember exactly what the deer looked like. Sure. So that can that can suck on my end. But for the most part, if people are running cameras and they got history with a buck, as soon as I get on that deer and give them a couple different angles, they, they can identify 
right then if it's the deer they hit or not. That's amazing. What elevation do you fly at? Uh, okay, so I basically fly between 200 and 400 AGL above okay. uh, ground level. Oftentimes, I'm higher than I am lower, uh, just because I want to. I want to stay up there and not annoy uh, people in the area if there are people in the area. But at um, you know, at 350 to 400, I can still zoom down and easily you know see what I need to see. Yeah. So when you when you say this is not legal in your area, where are you from? I'm from Oregon. Okay. And, uh, and what do you know about the rules and laws there? What I know is that you cannot look at a piece of wildlife with a drone under any circumstances whatsoever. Um, whether it's, you know, anything to do with the purposes of hunting or tracking or recovery. Um, Oregon is, uh, is pretty anachronistic when it comes to the way they interface with, uh, with technology and hunting. And it, it drives me crazy, but we've got some of the most archaic laws out there concerning, you know, archery, muzzleloaders, uh, sites, et cetera. It drives me crazy. Wow. Wow. That, that, honestly, if you look at it from a state uh, point of view, that, that's pathetic, actually, to think that they would do such a thing like that if, uh, if this resource can help with herd management and not um, have deer die out there or whatever it might be and go lost to you know whatever else out there but whatever you know yeah. maybe we, maybe we, we can get enough people on board and get stuff like that uh, out the door well we've got a changing of the guard generationally too because the the rule makers right now are people that grew up with a different type of technology and the technologies that they moved into were largely unreliable so, you know, you've got a, a decision-making demographic, age demographic that is still reticent to switch from like a, I don't know, a, a flip phone to a smartphone or something like that. Yep. Yep. So I, and I understand their life experience and have compassion for it. And I also understand that they're wanting to keep hunting traditional and they don't want to lose too much ground to technology because there, there are definitely technologies that that are an unfair advantage that take away from fair chase. But there's also after the shot scenarios where it's like, okay, no holds bar at this point. We should be able to use dogs. We should be able to use drones. We should be able to use anything that we possibly can to make sure that this animal doesn't suffer for another needless second. And so that yep. it can be recovered when that yep. meat is of the highest possible quality like that. Yep. It's just a no brainer to me. And, it, and it's more unethical to not allow it than it is to allow it. And I yeah. can see the yep. critics right now saying, well, you know, if we allow this, guys are just going to, you know, fling arrows and, and bullets and they're going to shoot indiscriminately and um, they're just going to wound stuff on purpose and then wait for the drone to find it. And I don't think that's who hunters are at all. No, no. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think like that, but it's definitely to me, it's it's crazier that the states wouldn't allow it if even if they have standards, right? Like if they're if they're like, OK, we'll allow it under these circumstances, you go through a program, uh, drone deer recovery program, you get certified through the state, even if they want to make money off of it, whatever, make money off of it, but allow it with uh, parameters like, you know do it, but you have to go through our program. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm fine with there being restrictions on how it occurs, but I do think that it should be available. Yeah. I'd like to talk through some of your experiences and how 
deer behave with with different shots, different types of equipment, um, because you're building up this really important breadth of knowledge that that you have to share with people. Yeah, basically, when I'm asked that question, you know, I go back to before I was able to start collecting this data. I was like, you know, surely there's a trend. Uh, because we've heard of the dog guys, you know, if it's, or, or I don't want to put dog guys on the spot, but that's where we were getting a lot of our stuff. Well, if their gut hit, they're usually to go, let's say water, or if their liver hit, they will do this or that. But honestly, what I can tell you with the amount of deer that I've found already, um, there is literally no trend right now. Um, I might need to find a thousand to get some type of a trend but right now dude i found gut hit deer that are maybe close to water but then i find gut hit deer that are on top of a hill i might find liver shot deer that are uh 200 yards from where they were shot and then i might not find a liver hit deer so it's i can just i can't tell you like is there a trend like basically you know you smoke them in the shoulder uh expect him to be a hundred yards from there yes and no because i found both already i've i've found a, a shoulder shot deer within basically 150 200 yards where he was originally hit and then i found shoulder hit deer that were a long way from there so unfortunately i, I can't give you a, a trend or or that type of thing right now okay um is there a type of of broadhead that you've seen be more successful than another well if it's a successful broadhead i probably am not being called out on those but every broadhead screws up um i would say that yeah so i i've found um fixed blade broadheads smoke through the shoulder um that didn't kill the deer and then i've seen mechanical broadheads smoked into the shoulder they didn't go through and into the cavity but they still got eight inches of penetration um, those mechanical broadheads, from what I've seen so far, uh, tend to kind of skip off of that shoulder and then kind of tuck up into the uh, armpit of the deer. Um, one broadhead over the other, I can tell you this, that if I'm shooting mechanical, if I'm shooting mechanical, I am staying away from the shoulder. I don't even give a shit about getting close to the shoulder. I will go mid-body and, you know, hope I'm up a little forward or a little back because if I have a mechanical and I smoke it through the gut, I'm going to find it with the drone. Wow. If you, if you smoke one through the gut with a, a, a single blade uh, fix, Ooh, those things are tough because it just takes so much longer for the deer, you know, to expire from that type of um, cut because it's not big and ripping through there. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Gosh, there's there's a lot of ugliness just in the subject. I, you know, I, I hate to even think about staying away from, you know, the the real creme de la creme of the vitals being the top of the heart, just because there's some bones in there that could absolutely arrest the forward progress of an arrow. Um, yeah, yeah. I personally just despise mechanical broadheads, but I think that they're probably fine on whitetail in a lot of scenarios. If you're going to go elk hunting, don't don't bring them. Um, please, for the love of God, don't try and shoot an elk <laughs> with a mechanical. It's just yeah, not, yeah, not a good idea. I I would say uh, I'll uh, I'll go out and say what uh, Jared says from Whitetail Drillin is uh, shoot a heavier arrow 
if you want to try to smoke a deer into any part of the deer, shoot a heavier arrow with um, a single bevel broadhead. And if you hit him in the gut, or if you hit him in the shoulder, or if you smoke him in the spine, it's going to drill um, the deer no matter what angle you're shooting him from. Yeah, that's the that's the same thing I subscribe to with uh, with broadheads and and arrows. So I'm I'm glad to hear that that's catching on more and more within the whitetail community. Yeah, I I think that everything you know o- over the last I would say at least five years it's all been about speed, super yeah. fast, like fast, fast, fast. But we can be as fast as we want if we got a little light arrow that's traveling across and a boink hits something that it shouldn't have, then it's like it's not even doing the job. So what's the point of being super fast if it's not getting penetration? And again, that came from a time period when we didn't have access to laser range finders. Um, so we were trying to shoot as fast as possible because we we're having to guess yardages and we we're bad at guessing. So, yep. you know, the fastest arrow out there was the most likely to hit vertically where we intended for it to, because we we're having to guess yardage. We don't have to do that anymore. Technologies replaced that for us. Um, so now we have no excuse to not know exactly how far an animal is when you shoot. Yep. And, and if yep. you take into account the, you know, the best of the best being like the Garmin zero site where you're ranging as you're shooting, then who cares if you're shooting 230 feet per second or 280 feet per second? Like you, it doesn't yeah. matter to the reaction speed of that animal. Um, you can do the math on it. If you don't believe me, I've done the math for you. I can send you a link to the articles that I've written about it, but man, uh, there's, there's just no excuse anymore to not have the best ballistic arrow out there. And that's going to be a heavier one. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's like you said, it's coming around. People are starting to see it. Like, you know, uh, you shoot your latest Matthews or your Hoyt or whatever, but just put a heavier arrow in it. You don't have to be in in the 380s into 390s or 400s heavier arrow slower speed you're still going to get that penetration that you're going to want yep yep super important what other lessons have you learned that you feel like you could pass along to hunters Uh, (laughs) i should have thought about some of these questions what else have i learned oh um your brain I think is processing so much information when the shot happens for sure on big deer, like you are adrenaline filled rush. Don't think that the way you've seen that arrow hit the deer, that that's the, that's the only place that it hit. So basically what I'm saying is when I interview you and you tell me, yep, Mike, I, I, I hit him in the liver. I hit him. I, I know I hit him in the liver, but then I find the deer and it's shot, you know, up in the shoulder. What, why why'd your brain tell you or what did you see that told you that that's where the arrow hit? Yeah. Because like once I can show you that, no, it's shoulder shot, you know, now you're going to have to like try to re go back on what you've seen. So don't just always be like, yep, I smoked him. It, obviously you didn't smoke him or you wouldn't have called us. So right. um, basically I would say that, you know, give yourself a little bit of grace that, you know, you don't know where the same hill you hit him for sure, but you hope it's a good shot. Um, so yeah, don't always go on. Yep. I, uh, I know I hit him right behind the shoulder because you probably didn't because you wouldn't be calling me. Yep. I've, I've, 
actually thought about this quite a bit and I'm no different. I'm a bad first person witness to my own shots. You know, I was deer hunting in Kansas last week. I shot a buck with a rifle at 200 yards. I had an excellent rest. I'd been sitting there for three days thinking about and mentally practicing this shot. I could not be more prepared to take a 200 yard shot on a deer. And you know, the target buck eventually came in, I shot and he ran over a hill, um, very much acting like he hadn't been hit at all. And, you know, it was, it was weird. It was a weird situation. And my, uh, my cameraman said, well, how'd you feel about the shot? And I said, I think it was good. I was like, how's it look on the video? And we couldn't really tell. And, you know, we ended up going, going back and putting it in it on a bigger screen so that we could see, and it looked good. But again, the steer just did not act hit. And, yeah. uh, we went back to look after a little bit of time and the deer had gone 40 yards and died and it was a fine shot, huh. but I was not able to say confidently. Yeah. That this is exactly what happened. And yeah. I, I just know that. I know that I'm not going to be able to do that, but I've thought about why that is like, how, how did we evolve like that as a species? Because you would think you would want to remember the things that made you successful on a hunt. Yeah. And I uh, I think that there's some people, uh, I think we all process a little differently. So for me, I feel like I'm one of those guys that almost like uh, it's a little embarrassing to say, but I feel like I black out like Hmm. right at the, the moment of releasing that arrow, there's so much going through my mind, like, you know, pick your spot, um, focus on what you're doing. Like the yardage is it right as all this stuff is going through my mind. And then when the arrow is released, it's just like, what the Sam Hill, like, I don't even know, you know, he ran away. I, I seen the arrow sticking out, but was it farther back? Was it forward? I don't, at that point, I'm like, I think I black out, but. I shot at I shot at this buck once with a 12 gauge standing broadside at 50 yards. Now I was young. I was 16 years old. 50 yards broadside. And I bring it up and this is the last thing I remember. I look across my gun and I'm like boom. And I'm like to this day I still don't know if I had the gun on the deer or if I was just looking down the barrel of my gun and it was kind of maybe in the direction of the deer totally forget like how embarrassing is that it's normal it's very normal anytime that your heart rate gets that high you're going to start skipping steps but the yeah. the, the point that i was going to make a minute ago is i think that for most of human history hunting was a pretty violent thing and it didn't go well for us you know we used to hunt some really large species And, uh, I think that a lot of times hunters didn't come home again and it was fairly traumatic. So our ability to forget those moments that, that seem like they should be so memorable and forget them instantly is probably a, a survival mechanism to, uh, to be able to block out some really traumatic stuff. Huh? I mean, Hey, it, it, it could very well be. I just don't know why else we we completely panic and forget what happened. Yeah, but see, see, it, it's not just in the hunting community. Like I, yeah. I bring this up. It's it's like I've seen uh you know tests done where they bring uh people out and they stand them in a line or whatever, and then they cause a scene in front of them. Um, let's say there's a dude that comes and you know. Uh, wrecks into somebody and then he runs off and then they interview each individual person and 
they might all be different. Like the one guy might say, well, I, I know he had a blue shirt on and uh, he had a beard. And then the next guy's like, no, he definitely had a black shirt and he was bald or, or whatever. And it's like, wait, like why? What? But yeah. I have seen that done before. Yeah. Eyewitness testimony is not a, not a great thing, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's funny. It's interesting. It's very interesting. Yep. Uh, tell yep. me a little bit about, about your drone. Um, if, if $7,500 was an entry level drone, I imagine that what you're wheeling around the skies right now is a pretty serious piece of equipment. Yep. 20,000 bucks. Um, Ooh. basically, you know, that's, uh, you're going to have to have that to, um, basically fly at an altitude that you're not, uh, screaming, uh, around the woods with a drone that's, uh, you know, 200 feet above the ground because you got to stay low in order to see what you're wanting to look at with a camera. So um, big props on it. That way it doesn't, ha the props don't have to spin as fast to carry the load up. If you, if you fly a smaller drone, 7,500 to $8,000, the props have to spin faster to carry the load up. So they're louder, um, okay. carries a bigger light, carries a bigger camera. Um, basically it has two batteries. I can do a hot swap, slide the one out, put the next one in, take the other one out, put that one in. And all the data of where I've been going with the drone back and forth is never lost. That's nice. Yep. Um, and then is FLIR making your camera? Uh, it's basically all built into the drone. So okay. the, um, the drone comes with the, the thermal camera on it. Um, I'm sure that the camera probably isn't built by the drone manufacturer, but I didn't get that into it. Like who actually is the builder of the uh, camera? Yeah, there's only a handful of thermal imaging processors in the world, um, and they build for a lot of different companies. But yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. What do you charge? Uh, I'm $450 to come out and look. And then I'm another hundred bucks if I find the animal dead or alive. Um, of course, I, I want to find an animal that is uh, deceased, but 50% of my deer are still alive when I find them. Interesting. 50%. Yep. Huh. Well, that's pretty cool. What are some limiting factors? Like, uh, I know it's, it's pretty tough on a, on a dead animal if it rains or if it snows on top. Oh, of no, it. that's perfect. That's, that's perfect. perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. So great conditions uh, to do thermal uh, on anything really for what I'm looking for is overcast days and rain. That's okay. awesome because now everything is wet and it's all the same temperature. So only things that are alive or have heat are going to show up. Okay. Um, same with snow. Now I haven't gotten into super heavy snow, but I have found deer. Uh, that were snowed on all night, and I found them the next morning. So that's not that big of an uh, issue. The hardest searching conditions, and I don't hardly do it, is um, a blue sky day, sun is out, beating down on the earth. Uh, you might as well just forget about it, leave your camera at home until the sun goes down, because the thermals are so screwed up that you you won't, if you're looking for something that is supposed to have a body temperature of, I don't know, let's say 75 degrees and the log on the ground is 80 degrees. You're not going to find it. Sure. How long after an animal expires, can you generally find them? Uh, that's a hard question because I haven't like exactly did research on that. I was talking to another guy today. It's like, 
I haven't gone out and killed a deer and let it lay there and then give you the exact numbers. But what I'll give you is the one, the longest one that I've found was uh, 33 hours after um, being dead. I have found and it had plenty of thermals. And then I'll give you the other side of the story is I have been looking for a buck um, that somebody in the in the party said that a, a neighbor shot a buck and it they didn't find it, but then they found it later, uh, and he said it's in this area. It's been dead for two weeks. See if you can find it. He didn't tell me, you know, where it is exactly. He just said it's over here. Like go see if you can find it, and I was able to find that uh, that deer two weeks after death. But here's the thing: it, a deer holds heat, you know, hits neutral, and then it'll start reversing as decomposition starts. You know, those gases build up, so then it'll create a, uh, some thermals. And I think that's why I was able to find that deer two weeks after death. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. You know, that is that bacterial breakdown occurs and they start putting off gases. That makes yep. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say if you if you call me just uh, sooner, the better. But if it's 24 hours after, that's not that long. OK. And uh, are you based in Ohio? Yes. Yep. Based are you? In Ohio. Are you working in any other states currently? No, nope. I've only done Ohio. How many states are legal for this right now? Um, we're working on getting all that uh, information figured out because as this thing blew up on social media, I've had hundreds and hundreds of people email me and want me to teach them and give them all my equipment and, the, and they want to do this in their state. So um, I don't know exactly how many states are 100% legal to do this, but we're working on trying to get that figured out. Okay. Well, it'd be interesting to uh, to follow along. And and I hope that, that people give this some real thought because uh, you've got to remember that these Fish and Wildlife Commissions, they they do read your emails. They'll They'll pick up the phone if you call them. And if you say, hey, this is something that I think we should consider for our state and this is why, uh, they're going to listen to you about that. Yeah. And yep. Just say it in the right terms. Like, don't don't call the game and fish and be like, hey, can I use a, a drone uh, to hunt? Of course you can't use a drone to hunt. So just don't say it like that. If, if you're going to do it, um, make sure you're using the proper terms. Like, can I use a drone to do carcass recovery? That's what I'm really wanting to know is, um, I'm using a thermal imaging drone to do carcass recovery. Yeah. I think that we should be looking at this and there will continue to be technologies that, that become available that push our comfort zones for, for what we think is, is fair and is just for, for hunting and for wildlife. For, for me, I have zero ethical issues with somebody using a drone to recover a wounded animal, but I do have issues with people who are opposed to it. And, and I would really like to talk to them. So if somebody yes. is just, yep. you know, frothing at the mouth, they're mad, they're biting their steering wheel right now because they're so upset at, at what I've been saying, get a hold of me and let's talk about it. Um, Cause I really want to hear, hear the other side of this as well um in case there's something i'm missing for somebody who would criticize this i i would like to hear that as well we we reached out to this one state that doesn't have specific laws written on this yet and you know um so the state wasn't even thinking 
this. And then we, we reach out to them because we're wanting to make contact and build relationship. And then they come up with, oh, shit, like we got to talk to our attorneys and, you know, we'll get back to you and give you a, a, a letter of um, basically saying what they think of using it. So it, it just they started figuring out, I feel like, how can you how can we tell you that this isn't allowed? which is so dumb from the state to really go into the defense mode. Like, it, I just felt like they're like, oh, well, we got to figure out why this shouldn't be legal. And rather, you know, figure out how can we implement it in a way that it will help in, you know, recovery of carcasses. Yep. Yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how this goes. And, uh, yeah, I, I want to hear yeah. from people. I want to hear what what people think about this, and I want to wish you all the luck. Um, I'm I'm proud of you for what you've done. I think that you're you're stepping up and trying to be innovative with technology and and to do the right thing. And and you're charging a reasonable amount of money for this. Um, that that's fair to you and and fair to your customer. And I think it's the most yeah, fair I, thing uh, that they can do for those deer. There's people that think I'm, you know, too expensive, but that that's all right. There's uh, there's always somebody that would want to do it for less. So right now, what we're providing, the the service and the uh, basically, you're getting more than just finding, you know, seeing your deer dead or alive. The peace of mind that we're able to give you, like, okay, for instance, there's a lot of hunters that are like you know, just check this draw. I just want to know that he's not in there for sure. And then, you know, rotting and going to waste. If I can show them that draw without them busting out all the other deer, that's all they want. They're like, okay, yep. Makes me feel better. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'll see you later. So it, it for a hunter, it is a big uh, plus to be able to look at specific areas and be hundred percent confident that the deer's not in there. Well, another application for this out in Western states, you know, we have cattle over huge, huge areas of land and we have chronic livestock depredation from wolves primarily. And to ask somebody to go out and, and ride all their land, that might take weeks and wolves yep. can have a, a cow cleaned up overnight, gone, yep. like very, very little evidence left of that. So they can fly with a drone and, and cover what would take them two weeks to do on a horse. Um, oh, so yeah. There's lots and lots of application for this. But as soon as it gets involved with wildlife, it gets sticky with current regulation. So there's just some conversations that need to be had. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If there is anybody out west that is looking for a cattle count or something like that hit us up. I'd be interested in getting into that because that would make great content. Right now, you know, we are telling stories that have never been told. Um, basically, have you seen a hunting show that's just about the deer that are wounded and are never talked about? That's that's like almost taboo, like t talking about the big deer that you hit and you can't find. So I feel that's another reason that our content is doing so well is because it is like it's telling these stories that are... Um, otherwise never told. Yep. And it's being honest. Um, and there's, there's a tremendous thirst for honesty out there today. Yep. I agree. Totally agree. How do people get a hold of you? Um, well, if they're in our area and they're looking for drone deer recovery as a service, they can uh, go to drone deer recovery.com. Um, go through the website there. It'll give you an application. Basically, if you're wanting the service side, 
fill out something on there. And then on all social platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, just drone deer recovery, and we should be able to pop up on there. Awesome. I encourage folks to follow along. It's some really eye-opening stuff. It's, I appreciate it's, that. It's definitely a cool thing. Um, it's a cool thing that you're doing for these animals. It's a cool thing that you're doing for the hunters. And you're right on the edge of technology. And I, I love that. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for your time. All righty. What I remember is getting up in the dark, shuffling on out to the pickup and climbing in, heading out, headlights going out over the fields and the roads and getting back into the into the mountains and the timber and knowing that there was a, a destination out there that that I was going to be sharing with my dad. And at some point, either during the drive or, or once we got out to some ridge that we were going to be watching when the sun came up, you'd hear that that little squeak of uh, of the lid coming off of the thermos. And then you unscrew that top part a little bit, pour that coffee or hot chocolate into a cup, and uh, you can just see the little tiny vapors of steam coming off of it, curling up into the morning and holding on to that thing like like it was a prayer and you know blowing some of the heat off of it and taking that, that first hot drink in the morning and then the same thing that evening, you know, because if there was anything left, it was still going to be hot. Like those are core memories. Those are part of part of growing up and part of being an adult and then sharing that. Now, you know, I'm, I'm getting to share that with my nephew and giving him those experiences. And it's an accessory to the experience. But part of what I remember about hunting and working with my family as a little kid was that there was this green, beat to hell, still going strong, Stanley Thermos. And now there's a complete line of Stanley products out there. And if you go to stanley1913.com, you can look into those and see if there's something out there that you need or that you want or that you would like to give to somebody else. And if you use the discount code 6RANCH, the number 6 and the word RANCH, and you can get 25% off of just about anything in their store. I encourage you to do it. They're great supporters of this show. They're great supporters of this audience. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all of your support and your attention. We're not stopping. We're going strong. And uh, I'm glad to, to pass along this discount to you guys. And I hope that you find something that can help develop that core memory for you and, and the people that you love. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.